Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Energy News Beat Podcast. My name is Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. Welcome for today's episode. We have got a heck of a show. I mean, this is from Steve Gorman, and he is uh, the author of The Green Breakdown. And for the podcast listeners, I'm holding it up right here. And it is not only an outstanding historical look of how we got here, Beware of the coming green energy failure. I'm going to just go ahead and say it is absolutely one of the best books I have read. And you can see all of my little notes that we need to talk about because it encompasses everything on how we got here to where it's going. Steve, welcome so much. And thank you for stopping by the podcast. Well, thank you, Stu. Thanks for your gracious comments. And I I am uh, honored to join you. Oh, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, I don't know if you can see it, my my pile of authors, and I have to give uh, Mark Mills a shout out. Uh, I've had Mark on the podcast twice, and I love Mark Mills. I also love the fact yeah. that he wrote a foreword in your book because he is a, a class act as well, too. So uh, great job. Um, we were talking a little bit before the show. Tell us about how you? Yeah, he's started. a great guy. I, How'd you meet Mark? I think he was. Uh, um, well, I kind of introduced myself to him. I, I saw at one point, and you know, I read his uh, great articles, and I think I, I read uh, the Bottomless Well um, many, many years ago. He was co-author on that, but he was named, I think, one of the top energy guy in the country a few years back, something yeah. like that. So. And uh, he and he agreed to meet me. I, I bought him lunch and and uh, said to him, you know, would you consider to write the forward for my next book? And uh, he was gracious enough to do so. So we got that done. But uh, yeah, he's quite a, quite a guy on energy. Isn't that fun? Uh, I'll tell you, when you started uh, going through this, and you know, I've already given you a shout out for the thoroughness and fun. Uh, your graphics that are in here are great as well, too. You don't get to this level of being an author with this problem. This problem is very dynamic and people kind of look at it and go renewable. And then that's their argument. You've got it broken down into all of the different subjects. How did you get to this point when you started the book? And then we can get into the rest of the topics here. Does that make sense? It's a bit of a research project, like all of my books. And I use publicly available sources quite a bit, and I got an awful lot of information from the uh, Energy Information Administration, from the International Energy Agency, uh, organizations in Europe, um, uh, and reading a number of books. And, um, you know, just trying to put some, some uh, common sense and economics to the energy world today, uh, which is off on, on a, a tremendous tangent. Uh, uh, this idea that uh, in all of the wealthy nations, uh, they've set a goal to get to net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. And everything we do emits carbon dioxide when our transportation, right. our heavy industry, our utilities. Matter of fact, every person breathes out about two pounds a day of carbon dioxide. And the idea that we can that we can eliminate those emissions or capture them is more than a reach out. It's really a hope and a prayer. It is not going to happen. Nevertheless, all of the wealthy nations of the world are spending a total of about a trillion dollars a year to try and do this on, on renewables. Right. And it's just going to fall apart. And we're already seeing uh, evidence that that is occurring. 
Well, when we take a look at everything that you just said, uh, there's about four arguments in here. And I, 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 let, I mean, you have whether or not CO2 is actually a, a problem because the plants are doing great. And then we have the fiscal responsibility. You can't do renewables when the, fis- when the fiscality breaks down. Is that a word? Fiscality? Uh, when it's broken down. So let's start on how you started here. And that was when we started in the 1800s and everything else, we were using wood and then we went, went to coal. Humanity got better. And in your book, we started about on on how it it really got into the humor section. And and then carbon started coming up after we got coal. And so when we talk about it's really, truly energy can and elevate out of uh, poverty, out of um, poverty. We started that with coal, as you pointed out. And then we went into oil and then gas. And then back in 1970, oil and natural gas provided 80% of global energy consumption. Hadn't changed much, has it? <laughs> no, it hasn't. It's still about 80%, according to uh, International Energy Agency as of 2020. Right. Yeah, it really is remarkable. Most people know about the Industrial Revolution, but I really point out we had a hydrocarbon revolution, right. which consisted of three main elements. One was the use of coal. Uh, the other was the use of fuels from uh, petroleum, uh, gasoline and diesel. And finally, electricity, which was which was all driven by, by coal and uh, early on and eventually natural gas. But those three things right. have shaped modern society. And as a matter of fact, if, if you probably the, the best uh, the best correlator to a global gross national product growth is carbon dioxide emissions <laughs> or energy use. I mean, those things are very right. highly correlated. And the nations that are not able to put energy to use very well have very low incomes. And the nations that use an awful lot of energy, and particularly coal, oil, and natural gas, have very high incomes and, and very high standards of living. Wow. So it has been a foundation of, of our societal growth over the last 100 years. But now, because of fears of man-made global warming, the world is trying to change all that. At least, at least many of our leaders are the the in the yeah. wealthy nations, and uh, really a path that, that's going to hurt society and, and the wrong way to go. Well, you know, I, I visited with uh, Gregory Wrightstone a couple of times over at the CO2 uh, Coalition, and I just had two podcasts with uh, Dr. Patrick Moore from uh, founder of Greenpeace. Uh, I, I just I really love that argument that you just brought up that CO2 is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, we're doing quite well with CO2. Yeah, I do. I do uh, point out I do one chapter on on uh, uh, climate change. And um, I think I'm trying to use the remember the quote I use. But uh, uh, who said that? <laughs> I said a, uh, a a myth is like an air mattress. It's uh, it's. It's um, I can't remember the I can't remember the quote now. There's nothing in it, but it's wonderfully comfortable. Was what 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 it what it was said. But so the yeah. So in chapter three, I talk about uh, climate change, which I did write two previous books on. Uh, the idea that that climate is dominated by natural factors, not man-made emissions. Right. Uh, we've had uh, today's climate is not especially warm. We've had uh, warmer periods, a thousand, two thousand. 4,000, 8,000 years ago, and it was warmer for literally uh, multi-centuries at a time than it is today. Uh, nature dominates 
right. uh, Earth's climate, both temperatures and uh, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But the green energy transition is based on this fear of, of human emissions. Right. And so the whole thing really is based on a false premise. And, um, and it is literally the biggest superstition in modern history, the idea that a trace gas that makes plants grow can be harmful to the environment and can cause dangerous warming. Right. Uh, but, uh, but most of the book, uh, the other 10 chapters are all about the energy transition and why, from an economic point of view, it is going to fail. Right. And and when you print money, I mean, the, the global recession that I, you know, that right, everybody's talking about stagflation right now because of printing trillions of dollars every year. I mean, you talk about the humanitarian aspect of that. There's two things. You also bring up the destruction of European industry because the renewables have cost so much more in everything than the global issues. If you lose all your industry, how can you print money? I mean, yeah, we've just had I talk about four big problems with with the uh, energy transition, why it's going to break down. And the last one is what I'll call, as you mentioned, transnational energy crises. Right. And we've just seen the first of those based on green energy that happened in Europe over the last two years. Uh, because uh, Europe has become very dependent on two sources of electricity. One is uh, electricity from wind and solar, which is intermittent, and the other is from natural gas. Uh, over the last two decades, Europe closed about 100 nuclear plants, roughly 30 in the United Kingdom and 30 in Germany. 23 nations said they would no longer use coal for electricity. And so they became very dependent on uh, intermittent renewables and natural gas. Right. And then a funny, a funny thing happened in the summer of 2021. The wind really didn't blow much in Europe. Output yeah. from wind for the year was down in uh, England, France, and Germany, which are representative of the continent, was down 20 to 30 percent during that year. And so all year long, Europe burned natural gas to make up the difference. And by the end of 2021, by December, they were very short of gas and prices of natural gas had gone up by a factor of five. Now, this was two months before the Ukraine invasion. And so then when the Ukraine invasion hit, it just plunged the whole continent in, into a tremendous problem. As you say, yeah. uh, for, ex for example, metals uh, industry was hit, hit heavily. Aluminum, uh, to make a ton of aluminum takes 15 megawatt hours of, of electricity. The price of that electricity at last fall was 7,500 euros. And uh, they could only sell it for 2,500 euros. So it's it's been impacting wow. industry. It's been impacting people. It's been impacting everything. The only reason the lights stayed on last winter in Europe is because we shipped vast quantities of liquefied natural gas from the U.S. and also from the Middle East. Right. Uh, Russia, cut, Russia cut them off completely. So this is uh, the more the world pushes for uh, dependence on renewables and elimination of coal and elimination of nuclear, the more we're going to have these transnational energy shocks. And by the way, Europe has, uh, they haven't said it publicly, but they have, uh, uh, they're really changing their tune right now. Germany restarted 27 coal-fired power plants. Netherlands, Italy, and Norway said they're increasing natural gas production. Europe has built 25 new liquefied natural gas receiving terminals Yep. Uh, so that they can they can keep electricity to their people. Uh, so so we'll see what happens. But I think uh, uh, it's the first start in in this breakdown that's coming along. 
I like, you know, uh, authors that have books that stand the test of time or Steve, just as you said it a little while ago, you went out on a ledge, predicted it was going to fail. Those are my favorite kind of books. And I, I think you are right on the money because uh, Germany is now dismantling a wind farm to dig coal in that one. Yes. I, I think it's the same one that Greta was throwing a temper tantrum in and had a staged uh, thing when they were trying to close down that coal plant. I think it was the same one, but they just closed it down. Yeah. I mean, the wind farm. Yeah. The, the thing about wind and solar is if you have a very hot summer or a very cold winter, or you have an embargo or a war, you can't turn up the wind and solar. You, you have to have dispatchable energy sources, natural gas, coal, and, and nuclear, which runs all the time. Right. Those are the only things that, that keep, uh, keep things reliable. And in the United States now, we are, let me read you a quote from a, a commissioner. Okay. Uh, federal Energy, a commissioner for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Mark Christie, testified before the Senate three months ago, and he said, quote, I think we are headed for very dire consequences, potentially catastrophic consequences in the United States in terms of the reliability of our grid. And he warned that we're closing coal plants too fast, or in some cases, we're closing natural gas, and uh, the reliability is going down. We're going to have these blackouts, and uh, people are going to have to are going to learn the hard way. Unfortunately, as you know, we've yeah. seen this. We saw this in Texas in the winter of 2021. Power was off for 72 hours for four and a half million people, and the estimates are that 700 people died during that incident. So this is not a minor thing when you have these blackouts. Right. But the more that um, the more that governments uh, push uh, wind and solar intermittent renewables and the more that uh, utilities uh, knuckle under to that, uh, we're heading for very tough problems. That is the second of the, of the four with the transnational crises. Another one is um, these uh, uh, energy, these electricity blackouts. That is going to be right. another result in the green breakdown. Now, Steve, when we're sitting here uh, also looking at with uh, Dan Bongino is always called the Inflation Reduction Act, the Porculus Bill. Mm-hmm. Love the Porculus Bill. What a great name. I'd like to st- steal that. But when you, you sit back and, and go, OK, we've had all this money. Now it's starting to roll through. There's over 24,000 energy projects waiting to be approved through regulatory issues. And then that's uh, there's a solar panel that have been bought and it's waiting two years to get connected to the grid. It's one thing to build all this wind farm, kill all the animals, and then can't connect it to the grid, and it sits there for two years not being used. What a bunch of mess. Uh, it is. The, the, inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act is, it really makes me sick in many, many ways. It is a tremendous slush fund of money going into all these projects. Just to give you a comparison, back during the, during the Obama administration, uh, the U.S. was spending about 12 to $15 billion a year on subsidies for renewables. Uh, when President Trump got going, it, it, that was reduced to about $8 billion a year. Now the Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act is aiming for $40 billion a year or $50 billion a year. And we have all these, these hydrogen product projects going on. We have uh, in Iowa, in uh, North Carolina, South Dakota, they are battling over carbon dioxide pipelines. The ethanol companies want to capture carbon dioxide because they get huge subsidies from the Inflation right. Reduction Act, enough to pay for a big network of pipelines to be built. And so the farmers and the citizens are fighting with the pipeline companies 
but but all of this stuff is is just crazy. Uh, capturing carbon dioxide is one of those foolish things that humans have ever embarked on. And hydrogen as a fuel has many, many problems as well. But uh, with these vast billions being shoveled to everybody, we're going to have a whole bunch of projects built and and most of them are going to likely fail. Um, you know, I it almost is sad that you have to have a business model to go after the federal money. And all that means is that you're not in sending Occidental Petroleum. They went the, the dual route. You know, they went and they've created their carbon capture division, but they've also stayed heavily in the oil. Ah, very smart because they're going after both the carbon capture and this. The European oil and gas companies, they took a total turn to renewables, and now they're having to come back going, we're just kidding. You know, we're, we're now doing that. Uh, and like Norway, you just mentioned Norway reversing courses out yet. They are now selling a, a good chunk that was missing back to the UK and to, um, you know, those. I believe they have eight different stations that they're selling out of uh, on that. And so without our natural, our LNG, they would have been dog food, as you said. They're a big supplier of gas. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I advise industry when I talk to them. I talked to the Association of Iron and Steel Technology last fall, and they're doing a smart thing. Everybody's urging them to use hydrogen, get rid of their natural gas, right? Uh, get rid of their coal and use green hydrogen. Basically, none of that exists today. Right. So what they're going to do for their new plants is they're going to build plants that can accept either natural gas or hydrogen, uh, which makes a lot of sense. So that's what I, I advise heavy industry to do. Right. Uh, but uh, there are, you know, this idea of using hydrogen, again, many big problems with that. Um, yep. It's very, very expensive, uh, particularly green hydrogen. From natural gas, it's fairly cheap, actually. We, it's about a dollar a kilogram to, to uh, get hydrogen if you make it from coal or natural gas. But right. it's, it's $5 a kilogram uh, if it if it's com comes from electrolysis. I heard the other day, maybe you could confirm or not, I don't think the, the rules for Hydrogen have been set yet as far as the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the size of the subsidy. But they were talking something like $3 a kilogram of a tax credit, I heard. I'm, and I'm thinking, the market price is a dollar a kilogram. You're going to give somebody $3 a kilogram a as a tax credit to produce green hydrogen? I mean, that's <laughs> three See, times the market price. Unbelievable. Uh, and as a matter of fact, for the wind farms in offshore, which are killing the whales, you know, uh, they are uh, 40% with a 10% kicker if they do certain, perform certain things for their subsidies and kickbacks. The Inflation Reduction Act is horrific. Yep. And, and the worst part is the consumers are going to get it in the drive-through, and then inflation goes through, everybody pays for it. But let, let's jump back to hydrogen. I, I actually like hydrogen as a theory, but water, doesn't it take so much water that we're also in a water shortage through all these places and just yep. the osmosis coming through all those filters, the water it takes. Now, the rainbow of hydrogen, I get gray, green, purple. Right. Yeah, I mean, I get so green is natural or blue is natural gas, right? Green is. I think so. Green is electrolysis. Yeah. Some of them are even. They're they're hoping to get some from under the uh, earth. I think maybe there may be some some stores of it under there. Yeah, if you produce it with natural gas, you know it yep. wouldn't be that expensive. The problem is it's not green anymore, right? And so, 
So they're all arguing about who can build what. Um, but again, hydrogen is, uh, you know, compared to natural gas, it's more expensive. Uh, it, it's, uh, it requires a lot more either, either uh, liquefaction, compression, very low temperatures to transport. It also uh, injures, there's a thing called uh, hydrogen embrittlement. It injures pipelines. Um, hydrogen uh, atoms are very reactive. Uh, with metal and other sorts of things. It also escapes out of valves because it's a very tiny molecule. Right. It's just all sorts of, I mean, I could give you many, many examples. Um, the uh, the uh, There was recently a train in Germany that was going to use hydrogen, green hydrogen, and now they right. just switched over to electric. There were buses in Vancouver during the last Olympics that uh, uh, were running hydrogen, but they had to truck it in from the, from the East Coast and, very, you know, just ri- ridiculously expensive. So, um, yep. Again, if these things could compete, that's fine. California, for many years, has promoted hydrogen vehicles, but I think they have like three dozen stations. That's all they have in the right. state now. It's very, very low. So um, all these things sound good uh, until you actually try and get through the economics. And then if the government subsidies are reduced, uh, they're, n- they're not going to be around anymore. You know, what's funny is uh, I have challenged everybody that, that has any uh, that ever listens to this. The the wind farms um, that for green as they come around, they are everybody says they're uh, carbon net zero. No, they become carbon net zero around 10 years, supposedly. And that's where everybody says their calculations are supposed to last 30 years. So when I've been backing into all these kind of numbers, carbon net zero is never obtained. Uh, because when you come back, I'm starting to go back through, those things are no longer fiscally even capable of sustaining anything till eight years. And that's even shorter if you take away the tax incentives and everything else. And so we're talking, they are never a long-term solution that's carbon net zero. It's a fallacy. I mean, it, and nobody has given me any numbers to tell me I'm I'm wrong. There are there are many, many examples of that in the Green Revolution. And I point that out in the book, as you know. But you're right. You you, uh, fabricate these wind turbine blades that requires a lot of energy, releases carbon dioxide. Then you put them on these long, oversized trucks and truck them around the country. You assemble them. And when you tear them down, you got to do something with them as well. I mean, there's an awful lot of carbon dioxide release. But another great example is from the airline industry. I don't know if you've talked about sustainable aviation fuel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is which is another another big misnomer, and and all the airlines have embraced this sustainable aviation fuel and saying saying it's going to be lower carbon dioxide. Well, uh, it isn't because SAF sustainable aviation fuel has to be a drop in fuel. Planes and engines live for a long time, 30, 40 years. So you have to have a drop in fuel, and so it has to have the same energy density and flash point and. And uh, all the uh, viscosity and all of the parameters that's in regular jet fuel. And so when you burn regular jet fuel, you emit three uh, three kilograms of carbon dioxide for every kilogram of fuel. And if you burn SAF, you emit three kilograms of carbon dioxide for every kilogram of fuel. So so where is the energy savings? Well, they say, oh, we're gonna, I call it life cycle hocus pocus. 
Yeah, it's, Life it's cycle to, hocus pocus. Steve, right? I go, love that. It's got to go through a refinery, but we're going to find a way to make it lower CO2 emissions, or we're going to use, or we're going to use used cooking oil. And so I, I, I asked him at a conference recently, he said something about used cooking oil. I said, do you really think it's possible to get to 1% of aviation fuel with used cooking oil? Do you think there's enough used cooking oil not around to do 1%? And he didn't have an answer, but uh, you know, it, so we have over and over, and it's sort of like uh, using biofuels as well. Right. If you burn, if you burn wood pellets in a power plant, uh, you reduce fifty to eighty percent more carbon dioxide per unit of energy right. than if you burn coal. So where's the savings? Oh, right. we can grow new trees. It takes forty years, but so you're right. It's the same thing about wind turbines. I think Mark Mills has pointed out that we do, we really don't know for electric vehicles that we're going to have lower carbon dioxide emissions. Nobody right. really knows. It depends on so many different parameters. But these right. seas are these things are seized on and pushed by the uh, climatist crowd, if you will. Right. I'm using that term climatism. By the way, we have two presidential candidates that are now using it. Uh, Mr. Ramaswamy and Mr. Trump are both using the term climatism. But it it really is an ideology. Right. It's, Did you coin that? Well, I think I, I got it from some outfit in um, in Spain. I saw it, but it, it was the title of my first book, Climatism. And then the second book was The Mad, Mad, Mad World of Climatism. Oh, how but fun. I, but I have no copyright on the word. So I am I am uh, I've I talked to Gregory Wrightstone about using it. I've talked to uh, James Taylor at the Heartland Institute. I'm trying to get everybody to use it. Right. The the, uh, the climate crowd is very good with labels, right? Greenness and clean energy, this and Right. But uh, we ought to be using climatism to point out this this ideology. Right. Well, racism has become just ubiquitous for everything that, you know, as soon as you want to not argue with anything, you just say racism and move on. So I hope it doesn't become that because I like the word. You know, it actually is a good word uh, for describing, you know, the thing. The activists that have uh, gone over, where is the energy hypocrisy? It drives me nuts. We see these people gluing their hands to the pavement. One of them uh, had to have his hand removed just recently because he they couldn't get oh off. Yeah, they just had to to do that. So you have the climate activists really believing that it's they're doing something good when you're actually trying to get uh, the the uh, let's just leave onshore alone for a second. Offshore, um, I just uh, interviewed a young lady, uh, Megan, and she is a testified in front of Congress. We're lose. We've lost forty plus whales uh, on the East Coast. Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's just horrible. And it's when they do their sonars, it blows their ears out. They hit a ship. I mean, the whales are so important that it's killing all this marine life. Where is the hypocrisy that these green or environmentalists are turning a blind eye to all the the eagles and everything dying on these things? That yeah, makes I sense. The, I think the probabilities are large that we're interfering with the whales. It is also true that we kill at least a million birds a year in the United States and many, many bats. Uh, all of these things have environmental problems. By the way, those wind turbines on the East Coast I don't know. They're, they're building them from Virginia up to Maine. And that this isn't like Europe. We get big storms on the East Coast. Uh, we get a big hurricane come through and it's going to destroy those things. Right. Uh, they now now wind turbines can they can feather their blades and they can turn into the wind to prevent damage. 
The problem is if you get close to the center of the eye of a hurricane, the wind changes so erratically and so powerfully in different directions that right. the wind turbines will not be able to yaw quick enough. And so they're going to get ripped up. And who's going to pay for these? Uh, the ratepayers in Virginia and New Jersey. And and I mean, we've had a history of hurricanes over the last, uh, we had a big hurricane of Category 3 that hit Long Island in 1821, right. long before any emissions of carbon dioxide. So this is just a bad policy, policy for people. It's not going to have effect on global temperatures, and it is it is going to have uh, some big Great. issues. You know, you were talking about environmental too. Can I march off in another direction about absolutely electric, absolutely. electric cars? So, <laughs> oh yeah, let's let's rumble. You know, they all say that uh, we reduce carbon dioxide with electric vehicles, maybe or maybe not. But the problem is that people don't see the environmental damage from EVs. Right. The International Energy Agency has pointed out that. The average electric vehicle uses six times the special metals of a gasoline car. Right. And where do these metals come from? Well, first, they're mined usually in developing nations, with the exception of Australia. There's a lot there, but but South America, Africa. And then most of these, are, and by the way, we're talking about lithium and cobalt and nickel um, and some others, copper. And then they're sent to China to be refined. And so what we have today in the case of cobalt, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo is the biggest miner of cobalt in the world, about 30 percent of the cobalt. And uh, it's well known in the news media that they're using child labor and they're using forced labor to mine. And so then they send the ore off to China where yep. it is refined and they have uh, big areas that have been polluted in China. They have one called uh, Rare Earth Lake, which is literally square miles of polluted area. And then once they refine the cobalt, they ship it to the United States in the form of batteries so that uh, everybody can drive their Tesla. So the Tesla folks don't see any of this going on, right? but it is having tremendous social and environmental impact. Uh, but boy, it sure saves on carbon dioxide, or, or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> I'll tell you what makes me airsick, Steve, is the, the fact that the kids, and think about how many people around the world, uh, they're working for a dollar a day, you know, whatever the number is, $2 a day, oh. and if that, and they're losing their lives, they're lost their childhoods. So Ronald Stein also said, uh, he said he can't buy an EV just because of the children abuse, of the child abuse that is going on. Where's the hypocrisy that you drive your EV, but you're not putting a, an affront to where that battery, how many tons of material does it take per EV battery? Well, that, that is a shame. And then you have the issues with, with the waste at the end. Right. Uh, we have a situation right now. Now, now much of a wind turbine can be, uh, the steel can be reused. The, the uh, concrete's hard to get out of the ground, but those blades are a real problem. They're fiberglass or composite. They're very, very tough. Yeah. Right now, Iowa is replacing old blades uh, that are 20 years old or so, and they don't have landfill big enough in Iowa to take them. Right. And so they ship them off to Nebraska and Kansas now. Uh, we have solar panels in California uh, that are, are need to be replaced. They've been going for, for 15, 20 years. But it costs $24 a wind turbine panel to recycle it. You get out about $4 worth of materials for that $24. And if you send it to a landfill, it costs 2 or $3. Right. So who's going to recycle? Nobody's going to recycle unless all of our tax dollars go to some government so they can redistribute it to these recycling plants. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense from, from, again, from an environmental point of view. But 
most of the public doesn't know about that that sort of stuff. Uh, right. All they see are the, these headlines that say, well, it's renewable and it's green. <laughs> yeah. And and what a great marketing job for, oh. for I, I, I just think it's despicable. But when you sit back and think Texas has more wind than California now, they have half the energy cost of California, but their boneyard for their, just like you described, their landfill is huge from all the wind farm blades that they're they're now getting. And uh, with the summer that went, rolled through, we didn't have the wind, we didn't have everything. And without natural gas and coal, Texas would have had a lot of blackouts. So, yeah. And this, uh, if you look at, I think in chapter uh, 10, I talk about uh, rising blackouts. Yep. Uh, there's da- data from the... Uh, the Energy Information Administration of the Department of, of Energy that shows back in 2012, 2013, we had an average of about three hours per per uh, customer on the energy grid, either a business or a, or a home, three hours a year. And now that's up to about eight hours a year, seven or eight hours a year. Wow. And it is growing and it's going to continue to grow. Now, all of these utilities now, well, they issue alerts. They say, uh, stop using your electricity. Stop plugging in your electric car. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's gotten to be an excuse. And they say, because the temperatures are extreme. Well, they're really not that extreme. Mr. Utility, it's your job to provide electricity, uh, regardless of weather conditions. Uh, it's different if you blow down power lines or something. Yeah, I could see that, right. but but don't don't tell me you can't produce enough power. Uh, that's your fault. You need to do that. But it has become an excuse for not only uh, uh, power blackouts, but forest fires and and every other thing. Uh, it right. is it is government's uh, big excuse nowadays. It's it's extreme weather. It's climate change. It's your neighbor's SUV. You know what bugs me, Steve, is the fact that they called it the Inflation Reduction Act or the uh, infrastructure bill, and both of them don't do what they're supposed to do. And, you know, the the infrastructure bill has nothing that we need on the grid just to repair the grid. I mean, you know, you sit back and kind of go, we need some infrastructure before we can even add these silly things. Yeah, it bugs me too. I, I, like everybody else, I send my tax dollars to Washington, and then they think they own it. They can do whatever they want and pursue any foolish project they want. <laughs> I Offshore we, wind or, or carbon capture or hydrogen everywhere, all those sorts of things, which really aren't going to do much of anything. And nobody's thinking about the consumer. The consumers always get it in the drive-through. I mean, it's just absolutely you get messed around in the drive-through. What was that? A uh, oh, a um, a diehard, not a diehard, but one of those great movies with Mel Gibson early on, that guy was always saying, you get it in the drive-thru. Well, guess what? You're going to get it in the drive-thru as a consumer. Um, right. And the, and the lower income folks get hurt the most. Exactly. Uh, you know, they pay the most because they their a bigger share of their income goes to utility bills. And then we got California uh, communities mandating you have to have solar cells on, on every house that you build, or you have to have electric appliances, not gas. Electric appliances are very expensive. Yep. Uh, we just had the city of Berkeley was the first uh, city in the country to mandate elect, uh, 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 that you couldn't have gas appliances in new construction. And, and they were sued by guess who? They were sued by the restaurant owners of California yep. <laughs> who said, hey, we like to cook with gas. It's cheaper and it's it's better yep. cooking than electric. Uh, matter of fact, the the uh, you probably heard the Ninth Circuit Court overruled the city of Berkeley 
uh, earlier yep. this year, and and it was a, a three to zero decision. It, it violated a, I think the 1975 uh, National Energy Law, saying that you couldn't mandate uh, uh, a certain energy use in 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 your uh, community. But um, yep. So yeah, there's just a, a bunch of crazy wild stuff going on about all this. You know, um, one of the things you, you you mentioned coming around the corner and everything else. I had mentioned last year on one of my podcasts that there was a great awakening coming for 2023, that people are going to wake up and realize the fallacy of what they're being told. And we're starting to see that people are opening up. People are talking about books by, you know, this great book, Uh, you know, for my podcast listeners watching on YouTube, I'm holding up Steve's book. I'll tell you, this one is phenomenal. Uh, I, I really do appreciate you. I love the fact that you did step out on the ledge and say, hey, wait a minute, let's take a note of this because it is about to buckle up. It's about to have a fall down. And uh, uh, I guess it's because I went to Oklahoma State, but I loved your little cartoons and your your things in here because that made it so much easier for me. I am yeah, kidding. it's sort of fun. I, I did that with my first book, The Mad, Mad, Mad World of Climatism. And, and so for my last three books, they're color paperbacks. I hire a cartoon to do a, a cartoon in front of every chapter. Yep. And there are also all sorts of colored sidebars on all the crazy stuff that's going on. Like this, yep. this one Swedish professor that is advocating that we eat human flesh to combat global warming. And he even asked everybody in the audience at his lecture, OK, how many are willing to try human flesh? I mean, there are a million things like this, yeah. and these are these are all real headlines from from news articles and papers and what people are proposing. Yep, the world is literally head head over heels and uh, driven by this crazy uh, uh, climatism ideology. I'll tell you what, uh, for our podcast listeners, I'm holding up. Uh, fear this. It's a little corner example, and it is absolutely hysterical how he's got these through all of this. Fear your gas stove. It's bad for you and the environment. If you can avoid it, you probably should. Uh, the Atlantic, October 15th, 2020. Yeah. Well, New York just up their ante on this, this animal this year. So, you know, it is pretty funny what you've done. They did. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go right. Yeah, there's a bunch of, there, there were a bunch of. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I was go ahead. say yeah, earlier this year, there were a bunch of articles coming out about, about how your gas stoves were were dangerous. Oh, but you look at who writes these articles. Uh, they're all climate people. They're not health yes. people. <laughs> they're all people that don't like global warming that are writing articles saying your gas stove is unhealthy. So people need to kind of take a lot of this with a grain of salt. Uh, everybody should be fairly confident. Uh, you do need a carbon monoxide detector in your home, but right. proper use of a gas stove uh, is is healthy for 99% of the population. Right. Let me ask this. Um, there is a lot of things happening in the last few weeks, Steve, about uh, climate uh, scientists coming out. And one of them just came out and admitted, said, hey, I had to falsify my findings just so I would receive funding. And, you know, having this kind of a scientist come out and have it now hitting, but it's not hitting mainstream media. It's hitting the podcast circles or it's hitting the alternative news sources, you know, or those kind of things. So you sit back and kind of go, you know, climate scientists are now admitting that the only way they can get money is to publish something stupid. I mean, excuse me, something counter to scientific knowledge. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a lot of pressure on uh, scientists at universities, scientists uh, uh, 
that are writing papers on on climate and energy, a lot of right. uh, pressure. Uh, a, if you're at a university and you you take the path of uh, of a, what I call realism uh, rather than yep. the path of climatism, you have a very tough time getting tenure. Um, right. There have been many cases of of scientists that have been attacked. Um, uh, there was a gentleman in England. I, I'm trying to remember his name. I talk about in my first book, Climatism. I talk about uh, a lot of attacks on science scientists in that book. Right. But he was uh, he was the head of three environmental organizations. He had been on uh, a BBC on for 400 shows. And he came out in the early 90s, said he didn't think we knew what, what caused global warming. He thought wind turbines were kind of foolish. But that guy was blackballed. Right. Um, he, he never got on another BBC show. And he was he was asked to resign at all three of his environmental organizations that he headed up. So there's there's a lot of pressure on people to yep. toe the line. Uh, so they can get published. And you find out that that most of the people that, that oppose the theory of man-made warming and some of these policies either already have their tenure or they're retired from a university or they've uh, they've left NASA, uh, like Roy Spencer, who's a bit of an advisor of mine. He said, he said back when we were at NASA, you know, we wanted to get the next satellite to study climate. So everybody kind of played ball. <laughs> but then you get these uh, guys uh, um, Harrison Schmidt uh, uh, wrote the foreword for my my second book, The Mad 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 World of Climatism. Right. Many, and he he was one of the last two guys to walk on the moon. He's a climate skeptic. Uh, you find there are a lot of uh, a lot of people that 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 think we're going the wrong direction on much of this. I'm I'm going to have to go get your book, The Mad 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 uh, World of Climatism. Um, oh. Did you ever see the movie uh, years and years ago? You and I could probably yes. the Mad Mad World. Uh, yeah, it's a Mad 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 World. That's where I stole the title from. In I, I kind of <laughs> thought you did. I love that movie. And uh, the whole cast was phenomenal. Uh, that one is a great one. So I, as soon as I heard that, I'm going to have to go get that. Yeah, but well, I that's, that's, filled I, with, that's filled with uh, uh, fun cartoons and a whole bunch of uh, sarcastic sidebars about what's going on with climate. I mean, there's. There's two different articles. One says that that animals are shrinking because of the climate. Another one says animals are getting bigger from two different papers. You know, uh, it makes my head uh, uh, hurt, but I am glad that there is a great awakening uh, happening of people around the world uh, that they're starting to wake up and go, I'm not going to put up with this anymore because the printing of trillions of dollars is only going to hurt humanity. And you brought up the problems in Europe uh, with the natural gas. They um, BSFAF had just had to close a nat- a fertilizer plant because they couldn't get affordable natural gas. Yep, yep. Many many fertilizer plants have been closed. Um, chemicals are impacted. Uh, metals, right. as I mentioned. Uh, all of those things that that use uh, uh, large amounts of electricity and natural gas uh, have really uh, taken it on the chin. Yeah, you you even bring up. We only got about two more minutes here, but you also bring up in your book: Are we going back to the Stone Ages? Do you think that there are our generations in the U.S. could actually survive Stone Age? <laughs> no, I don't think so. You know, the real problem with all this is a vast misallocation of resources. We have real pollution issues to solve. Yeah, eighty percent, and it's not carbon dioxide. Eighty percent of the world's wastewater is discharged untreated into rivers, lakes, and streams. About wow. six years ago, down in Brazil, the swimmers didn't want to swim in the water. Brazil's still just building their first water treatment plants. We have issues with plastics in the ocean that are somewhat overstated, but there's about a hundred 
million tons of plastic in the ocean and small particles, right. and it goes up about 10 million a year. We need biodegradable plastics. There are real problems to solve. Instead, we're wasting all this money trying to eliminate carbon dioxide, and we're not likely to, to affect global temperatures at all. Oh, yeah. Well, how do people find your book is going to be the Amazon link and is going to be embedded in the show notes. And uh, tell us what's coming around Great. the corner next for you. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Uh, they can get ebooks uh, as well. And it's also they can get it from my website, Steve Gorham, G-O-R-E-H-A-M dot com. I'll send them a signed copy. And for me now, it's just promoting the book and then uh, professionally speaking to industry and transportation, energy, a lot of different firms that, that I go uh, go talk to. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, thank you again for stopping by the Energy Newsbeat. And if I can help get the word out on anything for you, just let me know. Thank you, Stu. My pleasure. Hey, thanks. Thanks.